We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. How are you today, Bob? I'm, I'm good, Hampton. Are you excited? I am. Well, that's good. We had quite the conversation before we started recording. <laughs> Who knows, <coughs> excuse me, if those things will come up this morning or not. But, um, you know, one thing, maybe I'd like to do two things as we get started. One is a habit of ours. I want to read some scripture. But I also want to read the back of the book. I imagined the the writing on the back you know the what what we might call the blurb was mm-hmm. prob- probably written by Carson well there's at least a quote of Carson on there DA Carson great new testament scholar okay but uh, and he's the editor of this series um so I, I actually don't know who wrote the blurb because Carson's quoted in there so I'm assuming maybe it's not him but anyway blurbs are obvious you know they they're trying to get your attention but a lot of times i have found them so accurate <clears throat> so let's read the blurb well you don't have it in hand I don't. so I'll, I'll read it for us christian theologians rarely study the old testament in its final hebrew canonical form even though this was very likely the Bible used by Jesus and the early church. However, once read as a whole, the larger structure of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, provides a wide-angle lens through which its contents can be viewed. In this stimulating exposition, let's pause there for a sec. Would you agree with that, that description stimulating Uh i would too i would too as so far every sentence of that i would give an a plus to in this stimulating exposition stephen dempster argues that despite its undoubted literary diversity the hebrew bible poses possesses a remarkable structural and conceptual unity the various genres and books are placed within a comprehensive narrative framework, which provides an overarching literary, excuse me, and historical context. The many texts contribute to this larger text, 
and find their meaning and significance within its story of dominion and dynasty, which ranges from Adam to the son of man, to David, and to a coming Davidic king. So anyway, one of the things I wanted to point out about that is that more than likely, this is how Jesus viewed the scriptures as a, as the totality of it, right? Right. So what a fascinating gift, you know, Dempster's given to the people of God. Here, read this thing and have in your mind the same things that Jesus had in his mind. Yeah, perhaps he, uh, some of the road to Emmaus conversation. Yeah. He pointed like, out the, the, this very thing, the dynasty and all. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great reference, Hampton. So, uh, you know, my passion, we pointed this out a couple podcasts ago, but is to have people become great readers, you know, just like the other ways I spend my time around a pool deck. You know, my passion for the swimmers is that they become great swimmers. Well, in the household of faith, my passion is that we become great readers. And that I'd have to assess our current status as poor. <laughs> right? At best. At yes. best, it's poor. Yeah. We just look at the and, uh, I'm just, Instagram and Facebook videos and YouTube videos and have the attention span of a whatever. <laughs> I know. So I'm just trying to increase that. that. That's my goal. If I can foster greater reading comprehension, I personally will, will have considered it a job well done. I don't know if the Lord will, but I'll look at it that way. So the other thing I wanted to do to start out, we read uh, Genesis chapter three last time because I thought we were going to get to the fall. But you sidetracked me, Hampton. <laughs> yeah, so we... Obviously, you didn't, but um, we didn't make it to the fall, but we will today. But we've already, re we've already read Genesis 3, so I'll leave that in our minds. And I want to read, kind of, one way to look at this is kind of a follow-up to Genesis 3, and that would be Matthew 4. Okay. Because my, my favorite name for Jesus is the second Adam, or the last Adam, Paul calls him. So imagine, you know, a sporting event in uh, Genesis 3 was Adam's first at bat, and he, he strikes out, <laughs> right? Sets, sets us on the path of doom. But uh, our cleanup hitter is coming up, and he doesn't strike out. So let's read about his temptation. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's pause. You know, I hate to interrupt the text, but I want to set up just a couple thoughts. The Spirit initiated this, not the devil. Mm -hmm. So, temptation takes place in the wilderness. 
Now, who else struggled in the wilderness way back when, <laughs> right? Israel, as they're coming out of Egypt before right. they get to the, right? So there's so many echoes already going on. And it, it says tempted by the, <coughs> excuse me again, the devil. Let me just explain that term. Um, we, we all know who that's referring to, right? In Genesis 3, it was the serpent, but when you see the word devil, that's an English translation of the word diabolos. And, and you'll see that in Spanish a lot more clearly, right? right. El, di, el diablo. Right. So diabolos, you, you can recognize those words in there, Hampton, I'm certain, from your Greek days, like dia, you know, meaning through a, you know, prepositions have such broad definitions, but you know, generally through and balo is to throw. Like we get the word ballistics, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the study of a, a bullet coming out of a gun or something like that. So anyway, to throw through, what did, what, now why is that a name for Satan? I well, know. I know it's interesting. So in its kind, you know, once you ferret out all its context, we have a great English term that almost corresponds to it directly the mudslinger. That, yeah. that gets very close to that. I'd say that's the center of the target on that word. Okay. So the mudslinger comes, right? He wants to accuse, he, he wants to find fault. He wants to spin everything. He wants to smear. So, so let's start over. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, once again, it is written, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said to him, I'll give you all these things if you throw yourself to the ground and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began ministering to his needs. So a couple points, obviously we could speak about this passage forever, but um, one thing to point out. So the, the first thing the tempter called Jesus was the son of God, right? In mm -hmm. verse three. So, 
as you know from your Greek days, that's a conditional sentence. If you're the son of God and it's first class condition. So how could you also translate that word if? Since. Like since exactly yeah. right. And to me, that makes so much more sense, Hampton, because the devil's not wondering who Jesus is. Right. He's he's known him for almost all for since his own creation. Yeah. So for thousands of years, he knows exactly who this is. The fact that he's seen him in human form is no big deal. He he saw he saw him born. He he knew what was happening. <laughs> so since you're the son of God, and then think of the magnitude of the temptation. See, like if, if the devil came to me and hey Bob, you're really hungry. Why don't you make these uh, rocks into bread? Well, I can't do that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not really I, you know I'm not going to struggle with that temptation. Right. But since you're the son of God, right? Like why on earth would you be hungry? Fix it. You you snap your fingers and do it. Just speak it and it's done. So the better way to take that is since. Now, where I'm really headed with that is um, I, I used to, I know you're trying to rabbit trail me. And you, you know I'm not a movie guy or a TV guy. But I did used to enjoy a TV show now and then. I'm not going to say what show this was. It was so stupid. But it had like a tough guy cop. And in one of the episodes, there was a another character in there that, that would come, come in the show from time to time. And so he was there and somebody was really struggling with an addiction. And so this, this other character just starts railing on him and the guy says you know hey i've i've conquered you know my addiction you know well for how long well since yesterday <laughs> <laughs> you know it was that because yeah you were tough for five minutes you gotta be tough your whole life so it was so the scene was so funny i know i'm not describing it well but the point is with temptation you can't just say no once he's coming back right he will leave if you resist him but he doesn't leave forever mm-hmm. so so with the temptation since you're the son of god do x does that come up again in matthew i'm trying to remember but i'm you yeah well, as soon as i mind. say it i know as soon as i say it you'll go oh yeah well, Jesus is on the cross. And the Pharisees say, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Mm-hmm. In in my thinking, Hampton, that was the ultimate temptation. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe if I'm fasting and I'm really hungry, maybe I'll tough it out. But I'm about to die at the hands of some liars and they're challenging who I am. I'd come down. 
Yeah. I, I, you know, I'd say, okay, you, you don't think I can do this. <laughs> and to, to me, the ultimate proof of who he is, is that it, in essence, what he said back, right? It was in silence. He didn't respond, but he stayed there. So in essence, they, they say, since you're the son of God, come down. And he says, since I'm the son of God, I'll stay here. Right. That, that to me is the ultimate. But, but to me, it was the ultimate temptation. He wasn't just done in chapter four. And when you see that phrase repeated, you know, since you're the son of God, but now it's in a, a different voice. Well, the real voice is still behind that. Right. Right. right? The, the Pharisees are being controlled by the devil. They're speaking his words. So I just wanted to point those things out because we're going to get so far into what we call the fall today that <laughs> I wanted everybody to know there is a way out. <laughs> yeah. And, and that phrase I chose carefully, a way out. Luke will describe Jesus's ministry, right, as an exodus. Remember Luke chapter 9 when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in another passage, he refers to that as his exodus. So pretty, you know, the echoes of Genesis chapter 3 are heavy in the scriptures. So how about we get, get to Dempster? Okay. He's our guide through this material. And at one point, I'm going to take him to task, but <clears throat> only in the kindest way, because <laughs> okay. he's, he's such a great scholar. But I wanted to, just before uh, we get to the fall, I did want to pick something up. It's my page 65. But I don't know where it would be for you in the bigger section under uh, the Garden of Eden, you know, maybe four or five, right before the summary. There's a paragraph that just mentions the ontological equality of Adam and Eve. And I just wanted to touch on that subject for a second because our culture gets so backwards on this. So... Ontological, right? How would you define that word? Just having to do with essence, having to do yeah, with existence. Being, yeah. yeah, being or existence. So in other words, on a, a level of rank, Adam and Eve are equal. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Within that equality, there's leadership. Which, which necessarily implies submission to leadership. Remember, Eve was taken from Adam. They're ontologically equal, but she was taken from him. The serpent did not tempt Adam. He tempted Eve. Right? Adam fell over like a house of cards, but he wasn't tempted. So you know what I'm saying? Sort of he was. I mean, she, Eve then offered it to him. But the, the essence of the temptation was with Eve. Here's what I'm driving at. There's submission within 
ontological equality. Let me clarify it a little further with an analogy. Is Jesus equal to the Father? Yes. I would say so. Does he submit to him? Yes. And does his submission magnify him or diminish him? Magnify. I think so. I think we've got that stuff backwards in our culture. Right? When a woman submits to her husband, I think that glorifies her beyond belief. Yeah, I agree. That's how I look at it. And those who look at that differently need to keep reading the book and stop listening to the culture because that's pretty clear in the text. So, okay, now we get to the fall. So the next major section, Hampton. So um, we are at this point, I'm not even going to apologize for this. I'm going to mention it, but I'm not apologizing. I've got so much to apologize for in my life. I'm not going to add this to the list. I'm just going to read Dempster for a while. I might skip here and there, but let's just look at it this way. Hampton, Bob, and Dempster. Is Richard, is his name Richard? Stephen. Stephen. So Hampton, Bob, and Stephen are going to have a discussion. (laughs) So we're going to invite him into the into the realm of our discussion. So here's how he begins. The story that has been called the fall in traditional Christian orthodoxy is found in the next chapter. So he he means chapter three of Genesis. And it describes the expulsion of the couple from Eden for listening to the serpent. Let's pause there for a sec, Campton. That's a really good way to say that because don't we think, oh, oh, she ate the fruit? Well, fundamentally, she listened to the serpent. Mm-hmm. So just like we did with the, the Pharisees right at the end of Matthew, echoing the words of Satan from chapter four, is, is there an echo chamber in our culture for the devil? Where, where might you hear his words? I don't know. Well, I it's like they hear it everywhere. <laughs> I was gonna say that's exactly what I was gonna say. That's so hard to answer because the answer is everywhere. How about that last subject I just brought up? You hear him in there? I mean, as soon as you hear the word submission, doesn't your pride start you start to grit your teeth? Yeah. Right? That's mm-hmm. he, that's him. That's him. You turn on the TV, that's him. You have conversations during the day, a lot of what you're hearing is him. So the only solution to that is who should Eve have listened to? (laughs) The Lord. And she started out pretty, you know, she does refer to the Lord right away when she's tempted. But like we said, you can't be tough for five minutes. You got to say no every time. Right. If, if you fail once, you failed. If you succeed once, you haven't succeeded. 
you have to succeed every time. So this theological doctrine has fallen. He's, he's referring to the fall, right, in an ironic way, that that doctrine has fallen into much disfavor among biblical scholars. So back to my original question, where might you hear the echo chamber of Satan today? In Christian scholarship? Now that that answer might surprise people, but you and I are well aware of that, right? I've, I mean, I've come across stuff in our libraries that you wouldn't believe. What yeah, they he mentions saying. Westerman and Barr. I don't suppose you went and looked up what they said. <laughs> no, but I'm certainly familiar with those guys, right? So I don't, I don't, you know, I've heard them on some other subjects, and you're just shaking your head. That's, you know, how, how ironic that those guys are falling into this trap. But I'm going to skip some of those references, right? <clears throat> so, but such views, that is, you know, the guys who minimize the significance of the fall, but such views suffer from exegetical myopia. <laughs> he's got to show he's a scholar, right? For even though the theological term fall and the related vocabulary of sin are absent, and despite the fact that the technical term does not occur in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the concept of the falls not absent from the text. We've discussed that, right? And our example that you usually bring up is the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that word's not in the text. But if you stand before the Lord and mention Trinity, he's not going to upbraid you for that. He's going to nod his head and say, that's right. Do you refer to Genesis 3 as the fall? He's going to nod his head and say, that's right. So in view of the disastrous developments in the larger literary context and what has been termed the primeval history, that's Genesis 1 through 11. The term fall to describe the event of Genesis 3 seems more like a euphemism. Like That's a nice way to put it, fall. Yeah. As far from being a text exceedingly marginal is what how Brueggemann refers to Genesis 3. Are you kidding? Remember last week we said, if you take that chapter out of the Bible, you don't have a Bible. Yeah. It's, it's maybe the word disaster would be better than fall. Yeah. Or crash and burn or yeah. Something cataclysmic. Right. So uh, margin, Brueggemann considers it marginal to the biblical narrative. On the contrary, Genesis three is given literary and theological priority by being placed at the beginning of the narrative as necessary information for comprehending the rest of the text. That's exactly right. An expression like cosmic tragedy, tragedy is a way too weak a term, but cosmic uh, catastrophe, I'd say, mm -hmm. is a more suitable expression than fall. The flagrant rebel, here's, here's his statement of it. This is a good one. The flagrant rebellion against the divine word by the pinnacle of creation 
which has just been invested with the divine rule, is a heinous crime against the cosmos and its creator. That, that's a really well thought out sentence. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, when he says that that's a crime against the cosmos and its creator, the whole world fell when Adam and Eve fell, right? The earth was cursed. So it's it, the magnitude of it, you know, defies description. So let me um, make a comment before we read his next paragraph. So we know who wrote Genesis 3, contrary, again, to the critical scholars. Moses wrote it. (laughs) Okay. So if you imagine um, Moses's milieu, what does he see? Every time he looks at Pharaoh and he's got access to Pharaoh, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. Doesn't Pharaoh have on his headdress a serpent? Yeah. Did you ever think of it that way? That Moses is writing this about a serpent and probably the image in his mind is Pharaoh. It could be. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it provided the imagery, right? Pharaoh was not in Genesis chapter three. The serpent was. But every day, Moses is reminded of that when he sees Pharaoh. And so earlier we asked, you know, where are the echo chambers of the devil in our culture, our leaders? Where was it in Moses's culture? Pharaoh. Yeah. Well, that's what I was telling you earlier before we started about that guy's videos. And he shows the, the serpents in a lot of the uh, cultures in all the culture, all these cultures have serpents in their drawings or their statues of their gods, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, he probably points out in there. I have, I haven't seen what you have, but the uh, caduceus, that's the term for the medical symbol, like when the ambulance comes by and you see that. I wasn't going to go. I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, and I'm only going to say like two sentences. But that that so when you see that snake wrapped around that staff, mm-hmm. sometimes it's two snakes. That's called the caduceus. You know, this the symbol of medicine is a Babylonian symbol, right? You know, a demonic symbol. Hmm. Okay, I'm not going to explore that further right now, but something to think about. So anyway, here's uh, Dempster's next paragraph. A serpent, the most shrewd of the creatures of the field. Another way we translate that sometimes is crafty. Suddenly appears, urging the woman to reject the imposition of any limits and flatly contradicting God. So one of the things to point out there, his sentences are are themselves craftily worded. So the serpent suddenly appears. That's important because temptation often hits without a context. 
if you saw more of the context, you know, you could see it coming and prepare. But it often comes out of the blue. We have that phrase, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, there's, you know, as a reader, you're going, wait, 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 where where'd this guy come from? What's, what's this all about? So that's important that he mentions the sudden appearance. And it, it flatly contradicts God at one point. So literalistic commentators, well, I'm going to skip that because that, that's not going to have anything to do with what we're saying. The snake is a bizarre aberration in the garden with its ability to do what only humans and God can do, namely speak, and its attempt to rule the rulers. Let's pause there. Again, Stephen Dempster, very well spoken, to rule the rulers. I see that, Hampton, in our world today it's not our rulers that are ruling us it's those who rule them don't you think what do you who are you referring well well, just just take an obvious example i think um dictator biden is hardly making any decisions I think it's it's the guys behind him that are doing it. I think Fauci is making hardly any decisions. He's the voice of the decisions, but it's the powers behind him. If Bill Gates, for instance, goes into a room of leaders, they listen to him. Why is that? Well, he's controlling billions of dollars mm-hmm. so they listen to him it's people like him that are calling the shots it's not our quote visible rulers it's the guys behind the scenes so here's the you know that goes back to genesis 3 that's the serpent trying to rule the rulers the rulers in this case are adam and eve they're king and queen of the whole creation mm-hmm and he's going to try to usurp their dominion. So <clears throat> he goes on to say, in consonance with its slippery nature, oh, that was well said, it subtly renames the tree <clears throat> of the knowledge of good and evil as the tree of life instead of death. That's, when I first read that, I'm like, what? I remember going back and, you know, setting it down, reading the text and going, oh, I see what he's saying. So it's kind of interesting, but let's move on. When the woman objects to its subtle questioning of the divine command, the serpent unequivocally contradicts the divine word. So at first, he just suggests mm-hmm. when when he's resisted and he just flat, you know, the the mask comes off instantly. Then he just flatly contradicts the word of God. He contradicts that flat out. Um, you know, I'm working on a book. I have a title for it. I have a fair amount of it sketched out in my mind. 
one of these days I'll get down to putting it into print. But in my mind, it's called diagnostic questions. So it's a series of questions. You know, each chapter will be a different question to help a believer think through their worldview. And at the end of the book, hopefully you would be successfully diagnosed, right? <laughs> like you go to a doc and he'll tell, you know, take some blood samples, tell you what you need to eat, how you need to adjust your lifestyle, if you have cancer, you know, things like that. Well, I would hope that this book would do similar things for the Christian worldview. Here would be one of the questions. Was Jonah in a fish for three days? Mm -hmm. And if they, if the answer to the reader of that is no, mm, man, you really have to pause over that. That seems like a flat out contradiction of what God said. And I certainly understand figures of speech. I understand fables. Jonah was a real guy. Nineveh was a real city. And Jesus quotes that about his own death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So yeah, anyway, he just believed it. Right. So when you flat out contradict God, that's a scary, that is the echo chamber of the devil. So anyway, originally Eve does pretty good in, in round one. In round two, she gets wiped out, but the serpent unequivocally contradicts the divine word you will never die do you think there's any significance to the fact she added don't touch it i, I yes but in the opposite direction that that's usually pointed out i i think it's a legitimate addition right she was so scared of the prohibition she has don't even touch it you know, mm -hmm. that's such a, that's how I see it. I, I know some, some have taken that as like, she's twisting the word, but yeah. to me, it looks very legit. But she so, wasn't scared enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you might tell a kid, Hey, Hey, don't touch the stove, but you might say, you know, don't even go near it. I mm -hmm. would, I wouldn't understand that. Right. Right. So, so anyway, <clears throat> For God, you will never die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, you will be as God's, knowing good and evil. Let's pause there for a sec. <clears throat> we've so Hampton, we've probably been going, who knows, 20 minutes. We've 30. made one one page. <laughs> we've made one <laughs> But here's what's fun about that for me. I don't care. We don't really answer to anybody, right? Right. We, this is our own sandbox. This is the funnest thing I've ever done in my life, Hampton, is the podcast. So we can slow down when we want to. What an important, uh, the essence of the temptation. Here's what stands out to me when he says, you know, you, God's trying to keep you from being gods, in other words. Right? That's what mm -hmm. Satan's tempting them with. Right. They are like him. Yeah. They, that's why I say, you know, back to Matthew chapter four, since you're the son of God, turn these stones and that's the essence of who he is. He can do that. So he's tempting Eve at the very core 
of who she is. She doesn't understand, in a sense, who she is. Right? Mm -hmm. She is the image. You're not going to get any higher than that. <laughs> yeah. So it's such an interesting. <clears throat> so and one other thing about that. The last uh, participle, you know, that clarifies knowing good and you you will be as gods knowing good and evil. Any, you ever puzzled over that? How is it different than what they already knew? They knew it was wrong to eat the fruit. It was good to not eat the fruit. Correct. And so here, here's where my mind takes that, which is not necessarily where anybody else's should take them. But back to some of Dempster's original comments, you know, in this book, <clears throat> he was so big on how you develop the right lens for reading the scripture is by reading it. <laughs> it almost sounds like tautology, but if you, you keep reading, the text comes into sharper and sharper focus. You become a better reader by reading, right? You, you become a better swimmer by swimming. So, you know, as you keep reading through the scriptures, you know, time and time and time again, now you're going through Proverbs for maybe the 50th time. And it, some of this starts to dawn on you, like, isn't the purpose of Proverbs to make you wise? Mm-hmm. So that you might know good and evil. That sound a whole lot like that tree they're yeah. not supposed to eat from. That's how I've always seen that, Hampton, and I'm I'm open to rebuke. But I, you know, obviously, it's a tree, right, in the narrative. But I wonder if there's a close close enough relationship between that tree and the word of God itself that in essence, what God could have been saying is don't read the Bible without me. <clears throat> I'm not saying that's exactly what it is. I'm just trying to put into expression my own thoughts. Okay. Wouldn't that be something? Don't read that book without me. And what haven't we read already in these one page ago, these liberal scholars that diminish the fall? I mean, aren't they the mouthpiece of Satan? You know, it's just really interesting. Well, I can't remember the verse, but it talks about you know, things of God are foolishness to those who don't believe. Yes. Yes. So I, I wonder if, you know, when he said... For instance, doesn't it even seem, I know I'm just talking like we're, we're playing golf or something, but doesn't that sort of seem like a strange prohibition? You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good. Well, why not? Is, isn't that the one I should be eating from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I've always seen that as kind of a strange prohibition. Um, I certainly understand that you know, the essence of, hey, don't go against God's word. I don't, I don't question. If he says don't do that, then don't do it. But, you know, digging deeper into that, why, why would he prevent knowledge? 
And I, I don't think he would. I think he prevents it without him. So, for instance, you know, humankind can build an atomic bomb. Well, don't do that without me. Right? Putting an atomic bomb in the hands of children could be disastrous. So, right? Knowledge is fine, but not without me. That's yeah. kind of yeah. how I've always looked at that. I, you know, and I Great might thing. be. I might be reading into that, but those are the kind of things that keep me up at night, Hampton. <laughs> so let's continue on with Dempster. Uh, the serpentine figure will raise its head in the text. And that when he says text, it's capitalized. So he means in the Tanakh, mm-hmm. right? You, you'll see references to serpentine figures in a variety of ways. And it represents an evil power opposing the purposes of God. So, for instance, Isaiah 27, Amos 9, Job 26 are going to refer to like Leviathans and beasts, right? They're going to use the same sort of um, serpentine imagery to refer to evil. For me, I I use the imagery, you know, being a water person of, of water. It's a current. It's a deep current in in the ocean of our existence. And now and then that current bubbles to the surface, but it's always there. Right. So for disobeying the divine word and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the man and woman are exiled from their geographical home, the throne room of the universe. Oh, that's such a good, that's a good, good way to say it. To live east of Eden as dispossessed royalty. Man, that's a fantastic sentence. So, exiled from their geographical home, and then that's clarified by what's their geographical home? The throne room of the universe. That's why, you know, we talked about prayer a little bit last time. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned, you know, that that's important to consider where you are when you pray. That's where I view myself as I'm in the throne room. You know, I'm back in, in God's throne room when I'm praying. And we are dispossessed royalty. That's a good for yourself image. Mm-hmm. Both both parts of that. You are dispossessed, but you are royalty. <laughs> and east of Eden, that's you know the phrase east, whenever you see directional things in scripture and it says east, beware. Right? Mankind was kicked out east of Eden. So they are removed from the source of the river of life and from the source of their beatitude. The divine presence, right? Removed from all that. It's it's hard, would be hard to overstate the magnitude of the cataclysm that happened, right? Mm -hmm. You know, some, here's how that, you know, some people that know me in certain ways, some of the things that have, you know, upset me, you know, to the point where I just break down are not typically what upset other people 
you know, you see some horrible tragedy. I'm not unaffected by that. But what's that compared to Genesis 3? And in fact, isn't this horrible tragedy, whatever it might be, that a person faces a result of Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3 is what to be broken over. Yeah, I agree. Man, it's just so, so in fact, Hampton, that can paralyze me. We really need to move on in the text because I mean, I'll just get sucked into this whirlpool of the magnitude of the catastrophe. But so anyway, let's move on here. So east of Eden, they live outside the garden and here they will die. The consequences of the disobedience leave them to eke out an existence under the verdict of death. Hey, how about a rabbit trail? Okay. So I'm a rock and roll music fan. And um, there's a great Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song um, at Woodstock, but they didn't write Woodstock. That's a cover. I think Joni Mitchell wrote the song Woodstock. Obviously, in reference to that famous concert way back when. But um, in that song, she writes the words, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And I wonder how deep that sentiment ran with her. If it ran all the way, then that'd be a good thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway. yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with that song. Oh, it's a good one. <laughs> I'll send. I'll text you. You can listen to it today when you drive to the golf course or something. Uh, the consequences of the disobedience leave them to eke out an existence under the verdict of death. The rupture in the divine human concord has led to a breach in the harmony between man and woman, between the woman, the man, and nature itself, right? Everything's in disarray now. We're going to have struggles with the earth. We're going to have struggles with our relationships, all because of Genesis 3. The service and keeping of the creation now becomes laborious toil, and Adam's destiny is now to be placed under the foot of Adama. That's, you know, his way of showing you a scholarship. So that, that's the word for ground. So the name, right, the, the A-H at the end usually connotes uh, like um, origin. So for, for instance, the, the Hebrew word for man is ish. And so what's a woman? Isha. Mm-hmm the one that's from man. So Adam is, Ad- Adama, right, is from the ground. That's what his name means. So he's got to serve the ground now instead of vice versa. The woman created from the man to be his partner in co-ruling the creation is now placed under his foot. The serpent has apparently won. Oh boy. So 
the next uh, section is called the genealogical and geographical hope. So, you know, Dempster has taught us that when you see the word genealogical, that's a reference to dynasty. And when you see geographical, that's a reference to dominion. So hence his book, Dominion and Dynasty, that's the hope. So at the same time, the picture's not so bleak. The exile of the couple who have lost their royal status and dominion represents in a graphic way their death and fall, but there's genealogical hope, a promise embedded in the curse on the serpent, the so-called proto-evangelium. So what he's referring to is, uh, you know, you're the son of, or the seed of the woman will conquer the seed of the serpent, right? Bruise him on the head. God, God curses the serpent and contained within the curse is literally a seed of hope for humanity. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. The woman's seed will strike the serpent on the head while the latter will strike a blow to the former. The light of the immediate context, the triumph of the woman's seat, right, in light of the immediate context, the triumph of the woman's seed would suggest a return to the Edenic state before the serpent had wrought its damage and a wresting of the dominion of the world from the serpent. Just as the woman was built from the man to complete the old creation so a seed will be built from the woman with the task of restoring the lost dominion of the old creation to its rightful heirs the reason he's saying built is that's how you would translate that hebrew word when god creates eve out of adam it's Mm -hmm. you know you would translate that build so that's why he's repeating that you know, and then the way the woman returns the favor, so to speak, is to build the dynasty, right? The children, genealogies come from the woman. Okay. So, thus should be understood as the first echo of the penalty in which the woman is given a personal name by Adam. Well, let's pause there for a second. Wasn't Adam's dominion exemplified by his naming the animals right well eve doesn't name adam adam names eve isn't that dominion i guess so me too but anyway he names her a great thing eve for she is the mother of all the living so Von Rad says this is a genuine act of faith on the part of the man, but not in a general embracing of life, which as a great miracle and mystery is maintained and carried by the motherhood of woman over the hardship of death. Rather, in the context, it shows Adam reclaiming dominion in faith through naming his wife the mother which cannot help but allude to the more specific role she'll have as one who will provide a seed who will strike the serpent. I never thought of that that way, of him 
that be in an act of faith to name his wife. Yeah, because you've just been sentenced to death. So to to name your your wife the mother, right? Of all the living, hmm. That's kind of interesting. He, if he, he could have just had a little more faith, just a, a little bit earlier. <laughs> Would have served him. Okay, so <laughs> since you're rabbit trailing me, let me go down this a little bit because this is gonna. I'm going to hold it together. I'm not going to cry, but I just want you to know I am inside. What should Adam have done once Eve, he, you know, imagine the picture. It's not stated explicitly in a text, but you can piece it together, right? So imagine just your wife, Eve, looks at you with this fruit. You can see a bite taken out of it. And hands it to you. Well, I'm going to back up. I used to think that Adam was off on the other side of the garden with the rototiller doing whatever. (laughs) And then I think it was the Silence of Adam book by Larry Crabb. And he pointed out in that book that Adam was with her. Perhaps. And I'm going, was he really standing right there when she was having the conversation? And I mean, we can't know that, but, you know, I was like, why didn't he say something? And hence the book, Silence of Adam. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that kind of threw me for a loop there. I was like, oh, wow. Something to to think about. Yeah. yeah. You know, the text. Well, (laughs) but that, no, I'm glad you did that because that really brings up a a critical point, you know, that I want to express to everyone. I tend to run with things pretty far. <laughs> my guard, ra- my main guard, you're one of my guardrails, but my main guardrail is the text itself. And not even, you know, the immediate text, text like uh, Dempster uses the word text, you know, the whole thing. So the Bible itself is my guardrail. And nowhere in the scriptures does it fault Adam for that. Right. God never says, Hey, why didn't you intervene? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I don't run with what Crab's saying very far. I I understand how he's piecing that together, but I think this, the totality of the scriptures kind of legislate against going too far with that. But nevertheless, the question does remain, what should Adam have done? when he was presented with the new scenario. Okay, now Eve has eaten of this. Instead of you yourself eating, what should he have done? Called God over and said, hey, I need a new wife. So I promised, right, not to cry, but I think he should have died. For Eve. That's what the second Adam did. Hmm. I know that. I know. It's just something to think about. See that whole, you know, back to that marriage thing where the, the woman's supposed to submit naturally, right? 
well, what's required of the guy? Everything. Mm-hmm. And then who wouldn't submit to that? Who who wouldn't submit to a person that would give their life for you? But, and, and I'm not certain, you know, when I say that's what he should have done, I, the text never faults him for that. It faults him for eating. <laughs> and by the way, the the ultimate sin is Adam's. Right. Paul, Paul doesn't say, yeah, you know, the, the woman, woman was deceived. Adam was not. Right. Not deceived. You know, his was more rebellion. Her, hers was, right, more explainable. He has no excuse. And it, when Paul you know, mentions the false creation, the sin nature that spread to every, he doesn't say that's because of Eve. He says that's on Adam. Right. It spread through everyone. He, he faults Eve in other ways, but you understand what I'm saying. The ultimate responsibilities was Adam's. But, I, you know, I wish I had solutions for people. On the one hand, I wish that I wish I could just as a leader in the Christian faith, just say, you know, oh, the answer is X. But it seems like many times on these sorts of questions, the answer is you need to work that out with God. You know, like what should Adam have done? I don't know. Work it out with God. I'm just telling you the way I see it. Mm -hmm. Get guided by the text. You know what I mean? So it's so sobering. My whole tone this morning is heavy. I understand that. But, well, you can't deny the significance of this concept. It is fundamental. The reason I'm really pausing over this and going so slow, it is fundamental to a Christian's worldview. It's irreplaceable that you understand this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and its effects. <clears throat> right like is that's how i would fundamentally describe the difference between a conservative and a liberal whether or not they understood it in these terms i really don't think the liberal viewpoint on whatever issue factors in the fallen nature of man well yeah and we've seen that over and over again in our political discussions and the founding of america right you know that well, to bring up another example, you know, we often refer to this, even if it's only one or two sentences, but the whole COVID thing, I think the biggest hurdle in explaining my point of view to people is they just cannot comprehend that someone would be that evil. Right. And for me, that's a no brainer. I'm like, well, have you never read Genesis 3? You never read the very ne next thing that happened in the next chapter? A guy killed his brother for nothing? What, why do you think that story's in there? Obviously, it happened, but a billion things happened between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Why record that one in detail? That's murder. That's what's going on now. Why is that hard to think that the people at the top might be corrupt? To me, that's as easy as pie. But that's hard for a lot of people. So, 
So anyway, back to Dempster. Maybe we can begin to finish out this little section. And I told you I was going to take him to task. I haven't even begun to do that yet. <laughs> but <laughs> so maybe next time. <laughs> well, let's let's see. Um, so he's talking about you know Adams, like you brought up his act of faith in naming Eve. Mm-hmm her name. So many modern scholars do not see much theological significance in the matters of seed and land. This shows that they limit the scope of exegesis atomistically to the immediate context. And at that, read it rather woodenly when the context demands a more perceptive reading to say with some scholars that this text helps to explain why women both loathe and fear the snake so intensely is an impoverished exegesis at best. That's not at all what the text is talking about. (laughs) In a chapter laden with images such as trees of life and knowledge, a life-giving river, a talking snake, it's obvious that there's more going on than meets the eye. In the context, there's a battle going on for competing visions of reality, that of the divine word versus that of the serpent. What a fantastic last sentence. Mm -hmm. So in my thinking, Hampton, that, that sentence almost has defined my life since I came to faith. You know, so let's see, 21, for the last 43 years, that sentence has defined my life. When you realize you're in the midst of a battle of competing visions of reality, that of the divine word versus that of the serpent. Now, you and I spent a couple podcasts, I think, on the definition of truth way back when. And we settled on the idea that truth defined is that which corresponds to reality. So we could, you could almost read Dempster's sentence here as the real battle is truth versus the lie. The serpent lies, God tells the truth. And it's as clear as that in my thinking. That, that is just so clear to me. That's two plus two is four in my life and it but to put shoe leather on it so to speak imagine if we had you know back to the metaphor of like a lens to read the scriptures but i wear glasses right imagine if my glasses were, were literally god's eyes and you put those on in the morning like you woke up in the morning got out of bed and put on those glasses how different would your day look that's a good picture. Wouldn't, wouldn't it just be night and day from how we usually live? Yeah. And and isn't that the real battle? I I think it is. And and I the only way I know to, you know, metaphorically put those glasses on is just to be buried in the Bible all the time. That's the only way you're gonna see it the way God sees it. You've heard me describe this picture. It's similar. The, the point of it is similar to what I've been saying. But, you know, I imagine sitting in a big, soft, cushy reading chair. And I'm sitting in God's lap. 
He's got his arms around me. He's got the Bible open in front of me. We read it. And he says to me, see? <laughs> oh, yeah, I see that. But I think very few people see the world that way. Their faith is like part of their life. It's not all of their life. It fits in the little category of their mind called religion, right? It hasn't consumed them. All their thoughts aren't subsumed underneath the scriptures. But I think that's the only way to live it. So what would that real Christian life look like? I can give you two examples. It looks exactly like Jesus. That looks exactly like Paul. And those guys were very different from the people around them. Yeah. So what a great, I'm just going to read that sentence one last time from Dempster. In the context, there's a battle going on for competing visions of reality. That of the divine word versus that of the serpent. That's a good one. So at the end of that paragraph, he's going to say, the realization of the kingdom of God is linked to the future of the human race. So that's his emphasis on genealogy, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the kingdom, the key to the kingdom of God is genealogy. See, don't you wonder? I So I think about this all the time. You can give me some guardrails. It almost sounds crazy. You're almost going to, well, you're going to correct me right away. But I've, when we say, quote, the gospel, you know, Jesus died for your sin. He, uh, how to how do you say that without providing this kind of context? How can people even grasp that? What's going on when you say that sentence? Yeah. You need to understand this. Right. And I, and I do understand, you know, faith grows like the content of it, maybe not the power of it. Like a baby, a baby's faith is unbelievably powerful it doesn't have a ton of content, but it's really powerful. But to, to grow your faith in content, you got to understand the book. I don't, I don't mean that you have to understand the book to go to heaven. I just mean that to really understand that that concept, Jesus died for your sin without Genesis 3, without Genesis 1 and 2 informing who Adam and Eve were. I, it's just not that big a statement until you understand the whole context for it. I, I'm struggling to put it in the right words, but I, I think you know what I'm saying. But it, I've always sort of struggled with, you know, getting everything down to one or two sentences. It's a 2,000 page book. I mean, yeah. Right? You've heard me say it before. The way it works in my mind is what do you have to do to be saved? You have to believe God to be saved. Did God say Jesus died for your sin? Yes, he did. So you need to believe that. But he said a lot more than that. <laughs> right. So anyway, 
way to rein me in, Hampton. Good job. So these two themes he's referring to, dominion and dynasty, are immediately emphasized after the story of the fall. So we're going to stop here because I'm going to take him to task for a second. So I'm making a little note in my book. Stop here. So we're not going any further with Dempster. Okay. Because the direction he's going to go is that the twin themes of dominion and dynasty uh, really point out that, okay, the fall has been overcome, right? There's there's still hope for the future. Hey, when I read that, I just bolt upright. And remember, I do the vast majority of my reading in the bathtub. So I make a big splash. <laughs> And I say, like, I dialogue with the authors, right? I'll talk out loud to them. And I say, Stephen, did you just skip over where God clothes Adam and Eve? See, he's he so, he did. He's so intent on the, the type, and for good reason. I mean, I understand. That's why, I mean, I'm going to correct him in the gentlest way. I've learned so much from him. But you just skipped the evidence in the text itself, he clothed Adam and Eve. I mean, that's hard. As big as the fall is, that next little paragraph is as big. Because it's not just, okay, now he made you some pants and a shirt. That's not what's going on. I mean, it is, but the, that's only the doorway into the essence of what's going on. So you've heard me talk about this before, but the essence of what's going on is, so Joseph, for instance, later on in Je Genesis gets in trouble. Fundamentally, why? What is the issue between him and his brothers? His coat. His coat. Which shows his dad's favor. His preference. He's the heir, right? He's got the, he gets two tribes, right? The 12 tribes, he gets the double inheritance. There's not literally a tribe of Joseph. There's Ephraim and Manasseh. His children, he gets the double share. He becomes the firstborn. He's the heir. So, uh, you see that also in the New Testament, the prodigal son. First thing the dad does when the kid comes back from the pig farm, puts a coat on him. You haven't lost your inheritance. That's what the kid was worried, right? He comes back, man, I squandered everything. No, you haven't. You're still the heir. So what's God saying when he puts clothes on Adam and Eve? You haven't lost your dominion. You're still the heir. That's just so significant. I can't can't believe Dempster didn't address that. He completely leaves that out. And it's everything. But I'm I'm not minimizing what he's saying. I'm just saying, how did you miss that? Because again, back to my, you know how I have the quirky ideas about what Adam should have done. I have quirky ideas about how the whole rebellion in heaven happened. And we've detailed that on a podcast before, so I'm not going to belabor it. I'm just going to say in Genesis chapter 2, verse, this is going to get back to your net Bible. I'm going to 
make a really nice comment about the Net Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. So there's a little mark in your text, the letter U, and that refers to a footnote. So if you go down and read the footnote, it says... So the way they've translated it is when you eat. Then it says in the footnote, or in the very day as soon as. Now we know they ate. Did they die that day? No, not uh, physically. Right. And so that's what your note goes on to explain. If one understands the expression to have this more precise meaning, okay, that would be me, for instance, then the following narrative presents a problem. Yes, it does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for the man does not die physically, like you clarified, as soon as he eats from the tree. In this case, one may argue that spiritual death is in view. And I think that's probably what you were hinting at. If physical death is in view here, there are two options to explain the following narrative. The following phrase, you will surely die, concerns mortality, which ultimately results in death. Or God mercifully gave man a reprieve, allowing him to live longer than he deserved. So... It's a very helpful footnote, but a much bigger theological issue going on in, in my thinking. You've, you've heard me explain this before. But I think it is the, the way to read it is the literal way. You know, the day you do this, you will die. And they did not. And I think that caused a rift, like a chasm in the entire universe in heaven and on earth. I think that fact is how Satan took a third of the angels with him. Because for the first time ever in history, God said something and it didn't happen the way he said. Now, I'm also not accusing God of lying or being wrong, but they didn't die that day. And I think, I think the way God stepped in, they did die eventually, right? You read Genesis. I mean, we're going to read, if we get to it, and these chapters coming up, it's going to be laborious. So-and-so lived this many years, and he died. Mm -hmm. And he died, right? So death did enter, enter the world, but not that day. And I think God's response to the attack on his character as far as saying something and then not following through was I'll pay the price for that. So and he literally did. He yeah. died, right? So he overpaid. I mean, the death of Jesus Christ does not equal the death of Adam. He overpaid. So he made good on his word but not immediately. And you've heard me explain this before. That's where I think faith 
entered the universe. Because until Genesis 3, you never even had a reason to not believe God. Everything happened immediately the way he said. There, there was no unbelief. Interesting. That, right? Now, after Genesis 3, there has to be faith. Because what God says doesn't always happen right away. Because of the fall. And the ledger gets overpaid. But in the meantime, the way you tap in to the overpayment is by faith. You have to believe him. And not just part of it. You can't believe him for some stuff and then not believe him for other stuff. <laughs> you got to believe him. Because I think what Satan said to the, the angelic realm when this happened and the, the second half of that chapter three is really important. But when he watches God clothe Adam and Eve, I think he just throws up his hands to the angels and says, what's he doing? He said he was going to kill them if they did that. And he didn't kill them. And not only did he not kill them, but he reinstalled them. And I think they, a lot of the angels looked at that and agreed with Satan. You're right. He didn't do what he said. That's an interesting thought theory. That's how I take it. But I submit that humbly <laughs> to my superiors in the faith who will correct me we'll as they to, see fit. I guess we'll find out when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's the best ending, but maybe we should stop there. Okay. Well, that was very interesting. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.